Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show serving Canada's entrepreneurship community. I'm your host, Rick Spence, business journalist, editor, public speaker, and entrepreneur. After 15 years as the national entrepreneurship columnist at the National Post, and as the former editor and publisher of Profit, the magazine for Canadian entrepreneurs, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, scalable, and successful. On this show, we connect you with Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. You'll meet the people driving the entrepreneurial movement and we'll share their first-person adventures and their tips, hacks, and best advice for running startup and growth companies. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community for Canada's 3.5 million entrepreneurs. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. To entrepreneurs everywhere, this is your show. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're thrilled to have Nitu Gadara. Nitu is the co-founder of Social Light Vodka, North America's first unsweetened pre-mixed drink in a can. After 10 years of marketing food and beverage products at PepsiCo Canada, Nitu and her colleagues saw an opportunity to enter the ready-to-drink market with a zero-sugar, zero-carb vodka soda. New consumer products are a tough sell. But today you can find Social Life Vodka brands in nearly 3,000 stores across nine provinces in Canada. As Socialite's chief growth officer, Nitu is responsible for the brand's marketing and sales strategy, and she's enjoying the many challenges of scaling Socialite Vodka and making it a household name. Nitu, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to have you. And I just wish we were doing this on a patio, but we'll, we'll, we'll do the best we can here. Just to get started, uh, my favorite number one question to let entrepreneurs know that this is their show and it's going to be all about information they can use to grow their business. What are the top pieces of advice that you hope entrepreneurs will take away from our conversation today? I think the first thing that comes to mind is stop planning and start doing. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned, uh, you know, on this journey over the last seven years. I'm you know, I, I was that kind of person who came from the corporate world and loved strategy and loved brand documents and marketing planning. And, you know, you want things to be perfect and you want to have all the research and all the information in front of you and then make decisions and put something out there. But I think I've learned through entrepreneurship, um, you know, it's it's the it's the opposite of what you need, I think. And I think that can happen to all of us. You can get paralyzed in planning, trying to answer every question, strategizing in PowerPoint for hours, but that's really, you know, not going to get you anywhere. Um, And if you're looking to start a business, I think the best thing you can do is take whatever nugget of idea that you have and just put it out into the world as fast as you can make speed, you know, um, your advantage, Um, because once you put it out there, regardless of how much you planned, once it's actually out there, that's when things begin. That's when you're going to start evolving and pivoting because once it's out there in the real world, that's when you start learning. So you might as well get going uh, and get started. So that, that that's the first thing that comes to mind. The second thing that comes to mind are there's two things that are kind of tied. I would say persistence is key to the journey. I remember someone told me um, when when I started, they were an entrepreneur and they said, there's kind of two thoughts here, but you know, the the highs are high and the lows can be really low, but the key is to stay, you know, kind of even keel throughout the journey and just keep pushing forward every day. Um, 
and I, you know, the only thing I can say, I feel like confidently about anybody else's journey or any entrepreneur who's listening right now is that I can tell you your journey won't go as you're planning it and things won't go as you, you know, as you're hoping to, um, but you through it all have to be your own number one champion. And when you get the nose or when things kind of don't work out as planned, you have to believe in your you know, vision and keep going every day. And I think it's just about uh, reminding yourself of that. So, you know, as you kind of go through the highs and lows of entrepreneurship. Right. There's so much to unpack there. Um, <laughs> when you when you start a business, if you have a mentor or s- s- some lender that's helping you, they'll all talk about the importance of a business plan. And you're saying, and I don't disagree with anything you said, that, you know, um, you never really know what you're doing until you get something out there into the marketplace and, and, and your plans can change very quickly once once you start getting that kind of feedback. So where do you see the saw-off between doing the business planning before you launch or getting your product in front of people as quickly as possible? Because I presume you think you would think that there's some prep work you have to do. PepsiCo, Pepsi trained you, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, and that's a good point. And I think it's more about kind of like the, you know, as a cliche, I feel like this is like a cliche business word, but like the analysis paralysis, I guess, is what I'm saying to try to avoid. We definitely had a, you know, quite a thorough business plan, actually, before we started the business. We needed to because we applied for a loan that required us to have that very thorough business plan, um, which that's important. I think it's important to think through your go-to-market strategy, your competitors, your your key differentiator as a product or service, and um, you know your pricing strategy. Of course, you need to think through you know the fundamentals of your financial model. Um, all of those things you do, you know, that you cover in a business plan, you need to to do. I think you know where the saw off for me is is that once you start feel like you're you're nitpicking or you're trying to perfect you know, at the, at that point, it's like, are you really, is the incremental value of more planning going to get you anywhere really? Or are you going to, do you have kind of, you know, a basic understanding of this is the product I want. This is who I think the target market is. I kind of know what I want to call it. I know how I'm going to make money and I know where I want to sell it. You know, and you've done some of that basic planning. It's like, okay, just pause and put it out there. And if you got it all wrong, well, better, you know, now than after six more months of refining your business plan. Um, because you know, that's, I, I just really believe that's where the real learning occurs. Right. So once you get bogged down and saying, oh, I think the, the label should be white and black and I think it should have a spa- splash of yellow, then it sounds like that's where <laughs> you have to start f- turning off the computer and getting out there. And Yeah. And I actually love that you use that example because Socialite has had, we kind of laugh about it internally because it hasn't been cheap, but we've had quite a range of packaging evolution, as you just pointed out as an example. Um and it's funny, like, you know, I came from PepsiCo. I was, you know, 10 years of training and designing and building great brands and thought I had a pretty good package when we went out into the market. And as an example, you think I would think of this, but the product went to the LCBO shelves the first year we ever um, put it out there. And I was so focused on the can that we shipped it out in white trays. And then when I it got to the store, I realized, oh, every other brand in the store has a beautiful looking tray that they leverage as marketing real estate. And we just didn't design one. <laughs> and I didn't even realize, to be honest, until I saw our product on the shelves and then let alone so many other lessons of like, oh, shoot, like, you know, this doesn't, you know, quite 
look on shelf as I expected for, you know, some of the key messaging I wanted someone to see or whatever it may be. But, you know, as much experience as you have, it doesn't matter. You're just not going to catch everything uh, um, the first time around and you're going to continue to grow and evolve, especially as a small business when you don't have, you know, all the resources. It's the, you know, to, to do research and do all those things. It's the real life experience that's going to teach you. Absolutely. You got to you got to get your kicks in and your licks in. Yeah, tell, exactly. Tell me about your team and how you got together to to launch Socialite. Yeah, it's um, a, a story of mutual friends. I actually met Dan, who's a, a first, who's one of my co-founders through my brother, um, is a mutual friend of my brother's. And, you know, I was at a phase in my career at PepsiCo. I loved, you know, I wasn't one of those people who was like, you know, complaining at my job every day and hating my life. I actually loved my job. I loved working at PepsiCo. I loved the people, but I had reached a point where I was really just looking for a new challenge in my career and meeting all sorts of people, volunteering, doing different classes and saying yes to all sorts of random opportunities. And um, my brother said, hey, you know, got this friend. He's, uh, you know, looking to start a beverage company and your name came up of like, oh, who better to talk to than you? And I met Dan for a coffee and he came and he sat down and he said, listen, we've got this revolutionary idea. We're going to put vodka soda in a can. <laughs> and I thought, well, I drink vodka sodas every weekend, so I'm not sure. And, you know, he kind of explained to me, he's like, no, think about it. When you go down and I hadn't shopped the ready to drink aisle because, you know, I was well past the days of my drinking of Smirnoff Ice and Mike's Hard Lemonade. And I, I didn't really drink that kind of sugary stuff. So I hadn't walked down that aisle in a long time. And he's like, no, but you know, when you're camping and when you're by the pool or at the cottage, like you, you, like if you're a vodka soda drinker, you get it. There's never anything convenient you can drink. And as he started explaining it to me, I was like, that's so interesting. Like everything I knew from PepsiCo um, and my own personal life was every single food and beverage cap category in the world right now is being disrupted by better for you innovation. And so I left that coffee and I thought, you know, there must be someone, there must be someone doing disruption in alcohol and giving people this better for you drink in a can because that's what me and my girlfriends drink when we go to the bar we all order vodka soda because you you don't want the sugar from the pop and you don't want the sugar hangover so there's got to be someone doing it and I did a little research that night and then I went to the LCBO the next day and I was like holy smokes no one is doing this and this is literally all me and my girlfriends drink this is crazy and we just I just really felt like wow there is this huge white space opportunity in this category to truly build kind of something completely new in a category from the ground up. And uh, shortly thereafter, I met Kevin, my other business partner, and Kevin Dan are engineers. Um, and they didn't have any experience in food and beverage, but they like to drink. <laughs> and they had this great idea. And I think that's kind of how we came together. And what I love about our team is, you know, Dan uh, was a coastal and dive engineer and Kev was, you know, working construction projects as an engineer. And I came from food and beverage and we had um, this completely unique and different backgrounds that I think made us such a strong entrepreneurial team um, and having the experience in food and bev that I have, but then having the openness that Dan and Kev had to not do things the way that it's always done in the industry and kind of shake me a bit and say, well, just because it's been done that way, we don't have to do it that way. Um, you know, they brought so much new and innovative thinking to how we approached growing the business. Um, and yeah, so we we kind of had kind of decided together at that time, like, okay, we felt we all got got along right away, and uh, 
we started meeting Tuesday nights at, at eight, nine o'clock and uh, just started working on the idea until we kind of felt um, we got it to a point where we could kind of quit our full-time jobs and, and run this business full-time. Right. Getting out there and competing with the big brands. and I, But I, I guess you, you saw the niche first, so maybe uh, the, the competition wasn't quite as uh, as strong as it as it probably now is. What were your goals originally? Did you think you'd be on the shelves in 3,000 stores across the country? Yeah, it's hard. Um, yeah, it's amazing to like see that now. And I think we always really believed from day one that this was a product that Canadians would want and would love. Like we had a recipe that tasted amazing and it had no zero sugar, zero carbs, 80 calories a can. And we just thought, this is something people want. And I think when we started, what we didn't realize is how much of a hill we had to climb when it came to educating. And I think if you're an entrepreneur out there in, in a CPG or product category space and you're creating something new, I think don't ask for, underestimate the level of education you'll have to do. I remember our first sampling days, you know, we would just put up our tent and be sampling at a, at a local beer festival. And people would walk right by our tent without even giving us a chance because they saw a vodka drink in a can and they just assumed it was full of sugar because they'd never seen anything else. And we'd literally be screaming across parking lots like, you know, come try our drink. It's zero sugar, zero carbs. And, you know, people would have to hear that to be like, oh, what do you mean? I've never seen a drink like that. And it was years. It was years of building education in the category with and even with buyers. Uh, we got rejected from the LCBO in Ontario three times because um, they didn't believe Canadians were ready for a product like that. And we had to build our business case out in Alberta and BC, where it's a private liquor market, and prove that people really did want to drink like this before we got our shot, you know, at the LCBO. So there was a lot of uh, building to do before we kind of got to this point where we're now in nine provinces and 3,000 stores. Wow. Tell tell me about the, the work you had to do in order to to improve your chops in Alberta and BC. I, I know that the, the liquor system is very different there. You, you, the, the private sector is all over it. Lots more stores, um, you know, competing for business and carrying different kinds of stuff. How easy did that make your, your launch and what complications did you have working, you know, 2000 miles remotely? Yeah, I think, you know, what we actually did is, um, it was September of 2014 and I remember, or summer of 2014, I remember us getting on the phone and saying, well guys, we didn't get into any liquor boards, provincial liquor boards, so we wanna launch this business and you can't launch a business unless you have a product to sell. So we made a decision in the summer of 2014 to put our life savings together and make our first 6,000 cases of the drink without any customers. We had zero customers, but we said, you know what? You can't get a customer if you don't have something to sell them. So we made the product. And then there is a list that exists where we literally printed out a list of 1,200 liquor stores in Alberta, Joe's Liquor, et cetera, et cetera, private liquor stores. And we spent our evenings and weekends calling them. And we, our pitch went something like, hey, Joe of Joe's Liquor, you know, we have this drink, it's zero sugar, zero carbs. If you bring us into your store, we will literally be the only drink on your entire shelf that you can tell any health conscious person walking into your store, hey, you looking for something a little lighter that's not full of artificial sweeteners and ingredients, like this is a great drink and we think it'll be great. And I think in our first week we sold six of our, or 25 of our 6,000 cases. <laughs> We're like, okay, 5,975 to go. Um, 
And then a eventually sense of we humor got our- is important as an entrepreneur, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. We weren't freaking out just yet. I mean, it was a little nerve wracking with all of our, you know, a ton of money tied up in those cans. But um, we eventually got our first big break at a chain in Alberta called Liquor Depot. And they had, you know, over 100 stores. And the buyer was a big vodka soda drinker. And after lots and lots of no's from lots of liquor boards, there was finally a buyer who was like, I get it. This is awesome. This is totally what I would drink. Um, he loved the product and he rolled us out into a hundred liquor stores. Um, and that was, that was the start of, that was the very little starts of the the very little snowball that kept, kept rolling. Um, that got us the proof of concept we needed once we were in that chain and it, it started moving. People loved it. We flew out there several times to do tastings and launch parties. You know, it, it took a little bit. Um, as we were getting started, but as soon as it, you know, hit people's lips and people saw the benefits of it, um, we were able to just continue building on that success. And eventually that's what, what got us our chance into some of the provincial liquor boards. Nito, tell me a little bit about what Socialite looks like today. What kind of a company is it? How big is it? What, uh, what, what, what are the issues that are keeping you busy now? Our team has grown. You know, it started as the three of us co-founders, Dan, Kevin, and I. We're now a company um, of 17 employees. Um, we just recently actually grew to that size, um, growing our, our sales team across the country. Um, we have many flavors, um, over 11 flavors of vodka sodas. Um, we just launched, actually, this week, our new Orchard Apple vodka soda and our new line of lemonades. Uh, so there are lemonade vodka sodas with no sugar, no carbs. Um, so a, a broad product portfolio, many drinks for Canadians to enjoy. Um, and in terms of scale, yeah, we, I, I mentioned we started with those, you know, 25 cases. I think, you know, our target this year is I believe we'll almost hit 20 million cans sold or uh, 20 million cans sold this year of Canadians enjoying our socialite vodka sodas. So it's quite remarkable. Um even for me still, like, I just feel like every time I see someone pick it up at the liquor store, I'm just amazed at, you know, where we started and, and where we are now. So it's pretty, pretty exciting. So you're still in growth phase, uh, still growing the numbers, still growing the, the number of product lines. Absolutely. I mean, innovation is so key for us. We've grown, we bring out new products every spring and, um, you know, our category is on fire. You know, anyone who's kind of in the beverage alcohol world knows that, Vodka sodas, or they're sometimes called seltzers, are the fastest growing segment in beverage alcohol. Um, and so we're in high growth mode and it's a super competitive market. Uh, and because it's the fastest growing segment, every big, you know, massive multinational in the world is trying to get a piece of this pie. And we're really proud to have pioneered it, been the first in the category and be a small locally made Canadian player that's, you know, holding our own and a leader in the space. And our goal is to continue to grow um, our Canadian brand and, and be a leader here in, in uh, from coast to coast. Right. What would you say have been the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome uh, once you started up and were, you know, in, in production and doing sales? What were the uh, hiccups and challenges that, that, that hit you along the way? I think um, one of the, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, I'd say one of the things I think was hardest for us or figuring out is when um, 
to scale our team? If that's like a very honest answer is I think, you know, you take a lot of weight on you um, yourself when you're hiring people because you get that it's someone's livelihood and, you know, you want the business to be in a position to support your employees properly and grow your team uh, in a way that, you know, is responsible. And even to be honest, as an entrepreneur, there's no playbook. So even figuring out which role to hire next and, you know, which role is going to add the most value. I think those were tough calls for us. And I think we've just recently hit our stride growing our team um, and now really seeing the benefits of, of that come to life. And I think that's one, you know, thing that I almost feel like we could have done sooner is, is grown our team sooner. I think we had a little bit of hesitancy around it almost. That was one thing I think I, I learned that I would, you know, next time around really think about, um, you know, applying some of those learning sooner in the journey. I think from a, um, a, a, a straight up business and brand standpoint, I think as, you know, competition has surged in our category, um, we've really had to get creative and um, be very aggressive in, you know, knowing what our advantages are as a small business. So for example, we may have the Molson and Labatt's of the world coming after this category, but we know that um, how we do product development is so nimble and so fast and so tied to what consumers are really looking for. Um, we know the way we market the brand, uh, you know, is, you know, speed is such a huge advantage of us in terms of reaching our consumers and being agile to what's happening in the marketplace that I think, you know, uh, overcoming some of that, you know, the heavyweights coming after the category and, and learning it piece by piece of how to use our strengths to our advantage versus looking at it as, you know, we're the small Canadian company and these are huge multinationals. It's like, yeah, we are the small Canadian company. Exactly. So how can we use that, you know, to our advantage to, to be a leader in the space? Tell me how you turn that to an advantage. Every entrepreneur who's up against competition that's bigger than they are, which is just about every entrepreneur, you know, right. wondering how to, yeah, we're, we're more nimble. We can act quicker. We know our customers better, but how do we turn that into advantage? Well, I think it's just that, like, if I think of an example, um, you know, even in terms of our marketing strategy, right? So last, you know, um, we, we turn around marketing programs instead of in months, it, you know, in weeks, we've set ourselves up in a very um, flexible way. We don't work, you know, with a lot of traditional marketing agencies. We kind of leverage the gig economy and work with a lot of freelance talent. Um, and that allows us to, for example, of, uh, you know, last year when the pandemic hit and we saw, you know, a big part of uh, the, you know, uh, sorry, the restaurant world affected in such a dramatic way. We in two weeks, you know, were one of the first to launch a campaign called Dinner and Drinks on Us, where we gave out $10,000 to our fans to buy dinner and drinks from their favorite local restaurant um, to help you know, support not just any restaurant, but their favorite restaurant in their community. And we funded it. And I think, you know, the speed at which we turned that around, you know, allowed us to hit that sentiment of what was going on in the world and really re like resonating with people in their communities in a way that, you know, other, other brands eventually did come out with programs like that, but we had already kind of capitalized on not capitalized. That sounds terrible. Um, but we have already, you know, been out there and been able to support the community in, in a much more fast way. And I think we, we do that all the time. Um, and I think, it really comes down to all the examples I would give. Honestly, I'd say it comes down to one word for me and it's speed. I think 
you know, having worked at PepsiCo and knowing how process and planning works and how long it takes to get new ideas and things to the marketplace, just given the, the sheer scale of organizations like that, you know, when you don't have multiple layers of approvals and multiple layers of, you know, an organization and you can get from co-founder to the field in one phone call, don't underestimate that advantage. Don't underestimate that you can pick up the phone and call as a co-founder, your number one customer, your store manager, you know, your key stakeholders at any place, you know, big brands, big, you know, the CEO of big multinationals are not calling their key customers every day, but you can, you can, if that's going to make the sale. Um, And that those kinds of things, you know, you have to think about, you know, how speed applies to you in your business and every element of your business. And it's just, I think it's just a general attitude of a bias for action, like not sitting and always moving and always kind of rolling forward, I guess, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Dinner and drinks. That sounds like an expensive program. How do you control the costs on it if if you're buying some of your best customers dinner? (laughs) Well, we put it was kind of like a contest and we put a limit on what we could afford. Um, So we did we did in that in that campaign kind of you know, we, we redirected, to be honest, some of the marketing funds that were going to be towards sampling our product um, at different festivals that we knew at that point were all going to be canceled. And, you know, instead of putting that money in our pockets, we said, well, we still want to connect with our fans and with our community. So how can we do that? So we just made a decision to redirect some of those sampling dollars into um, supporting local restaurants through our fans. And that sounds like a really powerful campaign. Had community been part of your brand before then? And will it continue to be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you asked uh, that question about, um, it's kind of a similar answer to, you know, that's one of our advantages of being a local Canadian company. I think, you know, we built this brand, I always say, um, community by community, one fan at a time. And what I mean by that is when we originally launched I always say um, I met my now husband actually the day after I quit my job at PepsiCo and he was like, what do you do? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't have a job. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But our first summer of dating was literally him coming to a hundred days of summer where every weekend Dan, Kevin and I were working festivals in communities across Ontario um, you know, from the Whitby rib fest to the, you know, beer run in Toronto um, to kind of the food and drink festival on the beaches every summer. We were at two, I would literally just be at a, at a spin studio in downtown Toronto or, you know, um, a CrossFit gym and on, on a Thursday night after a CrossFit class. And we literally spent hundred days of summer almost every Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday out there in communities sampling our product because, you know, at that point we couldn't afford to hire brand ambassadors and staff. And we wanted to get our liquid, you know, on people's lips because we know it tasted so great. And if they just tried it, we knew that we had a, a strong chance at converting people and, and giving our, our drink a chance. And um, I think to this day, that effort we put in in those early years of, you know, there was a there was a um, a couple summers of that. And I think that effort we put in. And that, you know, blood, sweat and tears, I'd say, of setting up those heavy tents and lugging vodka soda cases all over Ontario and, and, and you know, putting putting your hand in uh, cold barrels of ice all day long for 10 hours a day. I think all of that um, and meeting so many people um, is just it's such a big part of our brand story and how we got people to know about us that it, it continues to this day to be one of the largest 
uh, other than COVID. Uh, but it's one of the largest investments we make every single year of getting into communities and getting people to try our products. Right. Tell me some of the things that you learned at PepsiCo that that did work in uh, in, 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 in building your brand, Socialite. Um, you know, so many people, so many entrepreneurs haven't had that kind of, you know, training from such, uh, you know, blue chip consumer products company. So tell me some of the things that, that, that you were able to apply that, that worked that you don't mind sharing uh, with Canadian entrepreneurs. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's been a big part of, you know, is it's like so many things you learn, you're like, okay, I won't take that from big CPG or big, you know, world, but the other things I will take because it's all the great stuff. And I think the big things were really around discipline of, of uh, you know, certain types of planning. So I'd say, you know, for example, and even just some fundamentals. So understanding, you know, something that was ingrained in me for 10 years at PepsiCo is the importance of building a brand with purpose. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, you're not slapping, you know, you know, a label and, and some food, drink or cleaning products, et cetera, whatever you're selling in, in, you know, in a package. But what do you stand for? You know, put the functional things aside of your brand. But what what do you stand for? What are people going to connect with um, and understanding the, the, the importance of brand building to the long term success of a, a business? Um, and then I think even things like you know, some anyone who's listening who's ever worked at a CPG will know the term AOP, which means annual operating plan. Um, you know, that cycle of planning gets ingrained into you. Um, and that's really about, you know, for example, for the people who haven't had that experience is every, let's say, summer, you start your business planning for the next year. So you start thinking, what is my innovation going to look like next year? What is my marketing plan going to look like next year? And then what are the enablers for that success? So in order to bring that innovation to market and execute that marketing plan, you know, what's my budget and, you know, do I need to hire more people? Uh, you know, what's my, you know, my HR plan. And so you take the, you know, pillars and you even learned a framework. Like you always had three big pillars to your annual operating plan of like, it's to, to make sure you kept it simple of like, here are the three big things I need to execute to hit my growth goals for the next year. And then here are the enablers of how I'm going to get there. So these are the things I start need to, to work on setting up. Um, and I just think the fundamentals of that type of thinking of being able to lay out planning, kind of have a cycle um, that's very kind of disciplined and how you approach that every year has ensured that, you know, we stay on track and, and we use that very same process. Every July we start planning uh, for the next year, we lock in our plans by November. We're then planning for the new year. And by the new year, we're kind of ready to go. Um, and that's something I think I took, you know, from PepsiCo, just a level of discipline in in doing those kinds of exercises that keep you um, ahead of the game. Right. I find that really interesting. So, you know, we talked earlier about being spontaneous, being, you know, reacting quickly, um, being very mindful in the market today, yet you're reserving part of yourself and part of the resources of the company to plan a year ahead. Yes. And now you're making me sound very hypocritical. <laughs> no, no, it's not hypocritical. It, it, yeah, it, no, no, you're right. You're right. It is art. You're saying, okay, um, we're very short-term focused, but we can also be long-term focused at the same time. And to me, that's the best of both worlds if you can manage that. Yes, you know, you're right. And it's it's kind of, COVID's a perfect example of that. I mean, we wrote a beautiful 
annual operating plan and marketing plan for the year of 2020. And I will tell you, none of that happened. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, things did, and that that's where the skills of being able to be flexible and change and pivot as things change obviously became super critical and an and advantage in terms of being small and being able to change plans rather quickly. Um, so it is a balance. You're right. It's an art of I, I think if you're constantly flying by the seat of your pants, that's not a strategy I recommend and not what I mean by, I guess, stop planning and start doing how I kicked it off. I think that's it to me would be incredibly stressful. I think you need a plan. You need to know where you're going. You need to know what the cycles of your business are. You know, for example, if you're if you're in the food and beverage world or any CPG and you work with some of the you know retail in Canada, whatever category you're in, that uh, category is going to have a deadline for you to apply to be a new product on the shelf in the following season or year. I mean, you have to work your innovation schedules back from that and be ready for those submission deadlines. You can't just be flying by the seat of your pants. You want to put the best product forward by and do all the hard work to get there. Um, so of course there's certain things where you need to be disciplined and planful. Um, but on the other hand, uh, like things like COVID hit or, you know, something exciting happens in your category, uh, that's very relevant um, and it provides a unique opportunity for you to connect with whether it's your your customers or your consumers. That's where you need to be say, you know what, we were going to do this, but wow, this seems like an awesome opportunity for us to connect with people and build our brand. You know, everybody put their pens down and let's start working on this. You have to have that level of flexibility too. So it, it is a little bit of an art for sure. Yeah. I think this is a great insight for all entrepreneurs that as as focused as you are, as hyper-focused as you are on what's happening right now, um, you know, spare some resources and some attention for, for, for future planning. Um, no matter how unsure you may be about what the future is, it's, it's, it's going to pay back. So is there some trick you discovered for focusing a bunch of entrepreneurs on the future at the same time as your hyper-focused day-to-day? Yeah, I think, you know, it's very hard because I know entrepreneurs listening might be like, man, I can barely get through my day today, let alone think about eight months from now, which I can exactly. relate to. <laughs> yeah, like the to-do list never ends, right? It actually just somehow, no matter how many things you tick off, it always seems to get longer because um, it's just, you know, especially if you're in a high growth space or you're at the early stages of your company, there's just so many things to do. And as you check one thing off, there's another thing you got to do. I think for me, one of the things that's helped is I'd say two things. One is more high level and one is just very tactical. High level is we spent time knowing kind of the cycles of our business that we literally just laid it out and we said, okay, in July, we need to do this. And in October, we need to do this. And November, we need to do this. And we put that in, we just physically put that in our calendar as deadlines as a team and say, you know, we are accountable to one another to share progress on that. Um, you know, so that we kind of ensure we don't lose sight of the long-term planning required as we all are knee deep in the day-to-day -day of the business. Um, so there was just literally mapping out a month by month, um, kind of planning process so that we just don't miss those key deadlines or don't, uh, make excuses uh, for not getting that work done. And I will say 90% of the time, you know, we'll put something in our calendar where we'll be like, oh my God, we were so busy. We didn't get to it today. But, you know, we don't then cancel it. It's like, okay, you push it out four days, but it's still in your calendar. And it's like, you know, it's not always perfect, but you do your best. And I think the other thing I do personally is for whatever my accountability is, 
is I um, have just learned that your days can fill up so quickly with meetings and emails and the constant, you know, running of every little detail. And I have dedicated hours in my calendar every single week where I have three to four hour blocks where there's no meetings allowed. I shut off my phone um, and I focus. And I think I need that because if I don't have those blocks of time in my calendar, it is almost impossible for me to focus because my phone is constantly off the hook with our team um, and I'm constantly being booked into meetings. And so I think I've just kind of laid that out with my team of like, these are my two slots. I need the time to focus. And and now they know. And so everybody just kind of books around it. Um, but you got to figure out a system that works for you because you need the time to do do the thinking work, not just the doing work. Right. Tell me about what you consider focus work. Is that just getting stuff done, filling out forms, or is that, you know, high level planning and strategizing? Um, I think it, you know, depends, uh, depends where I'm at in the year, but for the most part, I, I'd say I use that time, at least half of that time, I'd say for longer term work. Um, and then depending on the week, like maybe I have a deadline that I need to catch up on and that's my focus time to finish my project or my, my work, but it is a lot of thinking time. Like, you know, I, I spend a lot of that time thinking about my team. Um, you know, what, what is the upcoming work even for the next two months and how do I need to manage their workload uh, or what, what projects do I need to get on their radar to ensure that we, you know, execute for the next season. And I think, you know, I spend that time thinking about that because I don't want to jump on my one-on-ones with them just reacting and always, you know, unprepared. I want them to lead the one-on-one and talk to me about what's going on. But then I want to be like, okay, and in two months we got this coming up. So let's get that on your radar and let's start thinking about it and start working on it. And I need time to organize my thoughts to figure out what, what all that is. So I, I use, you know, the time for, for things like that. Neetu, I read an article about Socialite that says that your branding and product development are all highly influenced by customer feedback, knowing what your customers want and what they're looking for and how they're changing. So tell us a little bit about how you find out what customers are thinking. And do you think this is an approach that more entrepreneurs should be taking? Absolutely. I think if you're selling a physical product or service, um, you know, maybe if you're kind of in Steve Jobs world where you're inventing the future and your customers don't know they need your product yet, like that's possible. But in, in the case of what we do, I think anything that you can physically put in your someone's hands, you know, you, you, they'll, they'll give you, you know, real feedback. And I think one of that was one of my biggest lessons leaving PepsiCo and becoming an entrepreneur, you know, working my whole career in the corporate world, you spend a lot of time kind of in the quote unquote ivory tower or focus groups kind of theorizing on what you think consumers will think and you become an entrepreneur and there's no budget. And like I was mentioning before, how we spent the hundred days of summer, you know, I always say you are suddenly putting on the t-shirt. And I think that is one of the best things that I ever, you know, one of the best lessons I can pass on is put on your own t-shirt, you know, whatever you're selling, put on that branded t-shirt, stand behind a booth, stand behind a sampling thing and go out there and talk to customers. And I think you will never get in a focus group or an online survey or some, you know, you know, research model um, way of collecting feedback, what you will get standing in an environment where you can sell your product. And I always used to say, if, if I can't sell a four pack to a customer as the co-founder myself standing in a liquor store, then how do I expect this thing to sell itself? And so I think doing those in-store samplings or festival samplings, it did, it, it was the best 
version of research because not only was I figuring out my pitch of what did it take to someone to open up their wallet and spend their hard-earned $9.99 on our beverage, you know, what was it about our drink that was appealing to them, which messages were working and which weren't, um, but they were then sampling it and telling me, I like this, I don't like this, I wish you had this flavor, I wish it was this, or I tried something else and I thought, you know, uh, that wasn't as good or that was better. And, you know, those, like you do that enough times and I think there was so much in the early days of our brand that was literally built off what people told us. They said, this is what we love about your drink and this is what we don't. And figuring out, okay, this day I sold 54 packs standing in, in a liquor store and the other, the other day I sold 80. What did I do differently? Let me think about that. Um, and I think that early, you know, there's no substitute for that. There's no substitute for rolling up your sleeves and doing that hand sell yourself. Um, especially in the early days of your product, that feedback is so, so critical. And um, I think if I ever were to start a company again, I would 100% put on the t-shirt and do all that work again, because I just don't believe I'd ever um, have learned all everything we learned about our business in, in any other way. Right. And then as we've scaled, you know, there's other types of research we do where we get customer feedback. One thing I learned from Pepsi that I'll never forget, no matter what category of food or beverage you were selling, the vice, the VP in your department would always say, taste is king. <laughs> it was a phrase. It was like, no matter what the benefits of it, it was like, people want things that taste good. And so, you know, we invest every, every time we have a new recipe, we get real consumers to taste it and tell us how much they like the idea of it, tell us, and then they score it on a bunch of metrics. And there's certain things you shouldn't shortcut. You know, you got to invest in making sure that you've got great products that you're putting out there. Um, and that, that's that kind of stuff we, we still do to, do to this day as well. Can you give me a couple examples of what you learned from consumers that, you know, made you change things up or go in a different direction or double down on something? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, as an example, um, in the early days, because I, you know, had come from this world where it was a lot about calories, calories. So we had led with, you know, messaging around that our drink was only 80 calories. Um, and it wasn't getting the attention I expected. And what I learned is that people don't really have any clue how much calories are in their alcoholic beverages. Um, and then we started leading with zero sugar. And what we learned really quickly is just that was the benefit people you know sugar we soon learned was the number one thing people were trying to avoid as soon as they realized that that was what it, our option was that that was a big learning another one i remember in the early days is because this category didn't exist now you tell someone a vodka soda or a seltzer and everybody seems to know what it is but back then nobody did and we came up with this description we tried a million things and we started calling it you know naughty sparkling water <laughs> or naughty or uh, naughty spa water. And it it was so silly, but it made people laugh. And it became this really emotive thing where it's like, usually those people, you know, standing behind booths are like, hi, do you want to try my product? <laughs> it's like, you know, and we started having this really fun, playful way to be like, to, to call it naughty spa water, or naughty sparkling water. And people would be like, what? What are you talking about? What is that? And it it started getting people's attention and we incorporated it into our pitch. And then I ended up incorporating that same line into our Facebook ads in the very, very early days when we weren't, you know, again, people had no idea what the product was. And that ended up being, you know, in our first year, that phrase of naughty sparkling water ended up being our best performing ad of the year because people were clicking on it because they wanted to know what that was. Right. Um, 
And it sounds like fun. It sounds that that's such a good word. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I think it's small things like that, that you pick up on, you know, how, how to like, you know, you have two seconds to get someone's attention. Okay. I've got to start with zero sugar, or here's a playful way to engage people. It's those small things that kind of incrementally move you forward. Right. I got to ask you, I, I, did it ever occur to you to, to, you know, trademark that name or come out with a product? <laughs> Naughty sparkling water? You know what? It didn't actually. We did use it for a while as our um, the way to hook people, I guess. But eventually the category took off so much that we didn't need to because people just knew what the, the, the whole notion of seltzers or vodka sodas in a can was. <laughs> It'd be a shame to see someone else pick up on that and make it make make it a successful product. That's all. That's true. Maybe something <laughs> we should think about. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Go you, back you, to our early days. You always need a challenger brand out there, right? Yeah, that's other, true. Other people are putting them out, so why not put out your own? How do how do you see the company growing from here? Where where are you going to find new markets, new products, new ideas, new stores? Yeah, I think um, you know our vision. We want to be the number one better for you drinks. Uh, brand in Canada. And so we're really proud to have been the first in the original vodka soda in Canada. Um, and now that there's so many out there in the category, our goal is really, you know, to continue to grow and we're proud to be a leader, but we want to be number one in the space. And that's really our goal to continue to grow in Canada from coast to coast. Um, and then, yeah, take it across borders into new parts of the world. They were a proud Canadian brand and we want to, you know, export it outside of our borders and, and bring it into new new places. We did launch in the U.S. last year um, and we're working on growing that business. So we see, you know, lots of opportunity all around the world and in Canada. We don't see this trend of people looking for better for you products and products that are cleaner label and less artificial and less sugar, you know, we don't see that going away. So we see tons of opportunity to grow, not only geographically, but even with products, so many, so many more great, um, great products we're thinking up, uh, you know, behind the scenes. Okay. Last question before our last question, what is it going <laughs> to take to, to succeed in the American market? What is it going to take to succeed in the American market? I think just like here, one thing we've learned is that when you go to do business in a new country, you know, it's important that you learn the like the local ways of doing business. And as much as we think of America as our neighbors, uh, you know, very similar to us, it's really not. And when it comes to our industry and I think um, what it, you know, what it's going to take is us building kind of a team and relationships in the states that we're operating in. Um, and I always say, you know, like in entrepreneurship, your idea is 1% and execution is 99%. And, you know, we spent a lot of time and a lot of hard work executing in Canada. And I think that's what it's going to take there. We have to understand the local go to market and execute the hack out of our, out of our uh, strategy to make sure that it, it not only hits shelves, but then ends up in, in Americans hands. Okay. Neetu, this has been an amazing conversation. I've learned a lot about the the, the vodka soda business, but even more about, <laughs> uh, about building a, a great consumer brand these days, which is one of the toughest tasks for anybody. So as we fade out of here, uh, the usual thing is to ask if you have one more good, actionable point for our entrepreneurs to take away. I got to say, before you do, I'm going to make it harder for you by reminding us that we've already talked about you know, the, uh, the importance of, of 
seizing an opportunity, um, taking action and not overanalyzing it, um, getting close to the customer, learning from customer feedback and applying that to what we do every day. And that the, 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 those wonderful insights you gave us also about uh, executing in the short term while planning for the long term and keeping both those timeframes in your head at the same time, which is a tough thing to do. So what's one final tip you'd like to offer the entrepreneurs in our audience? I feel like I was going to repeat myself, but the thing that comes to mind now is as I hear you say all that, I was like, man, that sounds heavy. I think my piece of advice should be enjoy the ride. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, it's, it, it, there really are a lot of ups and downs, but I think every little piece of progress you make, you know, celebrate it, celebrate, uh, you know, every win and, you know, um, celebrate every failure too. just be like, okay, that's one step. We're not going to do that again. Let's move in another direction. And I think you got to enjoy the journey, uh, cause it's, otherwise it's not going to be worth it. And, you know, with that, I guess, um, I'd say it, with all those little steps, know, know that that is the process. I think people think sometimes entrepreneur it, entrepreneurship is this one giant leap and you start on one edge and then you take this one big jump. And then suddenly like, you know, people see the big success stories of like, you know, wow, look at this startup. They're like huge now, or this happened to them or that happened to them. That wasn't anyone's journey. No one took a giant leap. Everyone took a whole lot of little steps up that mountain to get where you see them now. Um, or where you see some of those stories. So I, I just think remind yourself that that there's no one big jump and it's all the little steps you're taking every day that are going to get you towards your goal and just, you know, keep going towards that. And, um, you know, you believe in yourself and believe in your vision, you'll get there and just right. enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> Just to finish off that, uh, that that metaphor and totally destroy it, sometimes you have to take a step back though, right? I mean, that's the advantage of taking small steps instead of big leaps is that if you have to step back, if, if you did something that, that maybe didn't turn out to be the right thing, it's not that hard to fix. Absolutely, yeah. I guess climbing, climbing to the, the mountaintop, there's hills and valleys for sure. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. All right, Nitu Gadara co-founder of Social Light Vodka, a, a, a tremendous Canadian success story. We look forward to uh, watching you and, to, and, and cheering on your success. And I hope you have a great summer. Thank you. I hope you do as well. Thanks so much. Thanks, Nidu. We'll talk again. Thank you for joining us this week in the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show dedicated to unlocking the potential of every entrepreneur. Stay tuned another minute to hear the latest startup community news and the upcoming events lineup, including our hashtag Startup Chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time. I sometimes show up there too. Until next week, I'm your Startup Canada podcast host, Rick Spence.